remain standing for just a moment. If you can turn in a Bible, if you've got one before you, to Luke chapter 2, that's where we'll be this morning. And each of the gospel accounts that we have in Scripture approaches the Advent, the coming of the Lord, in different ways. Matthew is concerned with the details of the family of Israel in order to show that Christ was not just the son of David, he was even the son of Abraham. Mark, on the other hand, is so concerned to get you to the cross of Christ that he skips the birth narrative altogether and begins with Jesus as an adult. And then John, who skips the birth narrative as well, is pressing to show the deity of Christ, that not only was he from Abraham, he was even from the very beginning itself, being God and being eternal. And then Luke. Luke emphasizes the humanity of Christ, showing us that Jesus was born fully human into a fully human world. And so altogether, the four Gospels give us a big picture of the coming of God. So young Christians, this morning, as we read these few verses, this short passage together, now, listen carefully. This, this is a, a journey that Mary and Joseph have to take together. It's been some nine months now since the angel Gabriel visited them, and the government of the land in which they live has required that they take a journey. And so they do. So I want you to listen and and maybe write down, draw a picture or whatever you want to do to answer this question. What's the name of the town to which they travel? That's an easy one. And then the harder one is this. Why do they go there? Why do they go to this particular town? This is Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God will stand forever. Father, we pray that you would grant that we might see and understand your good news in this your word, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Be seated. So, again, we're during this Advent season looking through the scripture texts of the Long Journey Family Worship Guide that many of you have in your homes. And in Advent, as we await the coming of the Lord, which is his journey to reclaim all of his creation, this particular season leads us on journeys ourselves into some difficult realities if we're thoughtful about preparing for the coming of the Lord, preparing for Advent. It leads us into some difficult realities like miracles and worship and mystery and grace and exile and calling. All of these things are realities of the Christian life. Luke here leads us towards another reality showing it by emphasis on the fully human birth of Christ into a fully human world. And this reality of the Christian life is so universally appealing 
And yet it's so deeply elusive because we consider it to be a character trait to be achieved, which is ironic, rather than a gospel reality in which to live. Humility. Humility. You know, if you look it up in the dictionary, you find something like it's, it's going to be the act or posture of lowering oneself in relation to others. And it's from a word humus, meaning earth or ground. And so, it, you know, it's literally lowering yourself to the ground, laying yourself down on the ground. That's what it means to be humble in dictionary terms. And sometimes we think of it in terms of, of self-deprecating humor. You know, if you hear somebody making fun of themselves and it's kind of funny to laugh with them, at them, and you know, sometimes we'll think, well, how, how humble they must be to be able to make fun of themselves. And perhaps that is. But some of those who are the best at self-deprecation are also the worst at self-centered reflection because they only are concerned with how they look, and so they try to hide something. Gospel humility includes lowering ourselves relative to others, absolutely, but there's more to it. According to the words of a particular Presbyterian sage that, that many of us think of sometimes, gospel humility is this. It's not that you think less of yourself. Rather, it's that you think of yourself less. That's what gospel humility is. As a Christian, you have an extraordinary reason to think very, very highly of yourself. You do know that, right? You are the very image of God. On this earth, walking, living, breathing, you are the image of God Himself. You were created with your very life to pronounce and to proclaim and to display the glory, the significance, the weightiness of God himself. But the first man and woman wanted something else more than they wanted God, and that is now then the common character flaw, if you want to call it that, inherited by all human beings, being fully human in that sense, means that we want something else more than we want God. We've made into God things that are not God in our effort to become like God. And it's left us in ruins. And yet, still, as John Berger, I think, mentioned to me and and helpfully reminded me recently, there's something truly meaningful about being human. So much so that God Himself was willing to become one, to become a human. And the Christian life calls us into humility. In Philippians, we just heard the Apostle calls the Philippians, and he says to them, count others as more significant than yourself. But it's not a call to behave in a certain way. Rather, it's a call to recognize a certain truth. God Himself journeyed into humility so that in His poverty we might become rich. In gospel humility, you don't think less of yourself. You simply think of yourself less. And so to lead us there, God took a journey. He journeyed into a humble position. In those days, verse 1, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And then with the historical detail of a certain census taken under Quirinius, the governor of Syria, Luke launches us in full on to the humanity of the incarnation. 
Jesus was born under the law. Jesus was born under the law. God Himself subjected Himself to the creation that He had spoken into existence. The birth of the Messiah would be shaped by a law of a human king's decree. And as all humans would do, you know, he's calling the empire, the world, to be counted in their hometowns so that he could know, he being the king, Caesar Augustus or Quirinius the governor, the human king, so that he could know how many people are under his kingdom. So that he could know who he could tax. So that he could know what were the prospects for building his own kingdom and leaving a legacy in his own name. A human king had left this law self-serving as it may have been, so that he could build his own kingdom, but the God of heaven came under this law to submit himself to it. The God of heaven was born to this, submitting himself to the laws of men. What good, what, what God would do this? I mean, what God does this, submits himself to the laws of men. Your idols that you pursue and seek in your own heart that sometimes you're not even aware of, they don't submit themselves to your rules or your laws. They require that you submit to theirs. No God does this, at least not a little g God. The humility of God is really a great apologetic to a skeptical mind, if you think about it. A couple of weeks ago, I read to you that, that quote from a blogger who said, if one person has an imaginary friend, then we call him crazy. And if lots of people have the same imaginary friend, we call it a religion. You know, it's a great quote. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful encapsulated picture of skepticism. And it, it is a mocking of religion based on a false assumption. And do you know what the false assumption is? It is this. I am free. That's the false assumption. I am free. I'm unbound by others, whether real or imagined. I was, the other day, stopped at a gas station to fill up my car and, and at the gas pump waiting for my car to fill up. I noticed... One aisle over, a man kind of across the aisle with his pickup truck, and he wasn't pumping gas into his truck. He was standing like this. I could see the profile of his face, and he was having a conversation, but no one else was there. He was having a very animated conversation. It was, I will not be there when you ask me to be there. I don't care. I don't need your coaching. I mean, I'm telling you that I'm okay, and I, we have no problem here. And, and I started to think, this guy's crazy. I mean, he must have an imaginary friend. There was no cell phone in his hands. His, he was animated with both hands, talking, pointing at someone in front of him. There was no one there. And I started to think, this guy's got to be crazy. I, I need to finish my job here and get out of here before he turns on me. And then, of course, he turned so that I could see the other side of him. And he had one of those, is it a Bluetooth earpiece in his ear? And he was talking to somebody. This guy was not as free as he appeared to be. And neither are you nor I. Nobody is, is free. We, we're bound. You're bound by the opinions of other people or by your own opinions of yourself or of others. You're bound by expectations, whether you expect things of yourself or you know that other people, unspoken, expect things of you. You're bound by those things. You're bound by your conscience. Even your conscience is bound. Do you know that? Even your conscience is bound by your perception of right and wrong according to the laws of the land in which you live and the culture and the context in which you find yourself, you're con every, every part of you is bound by something. You're not free because you're human. A part of what it means to be 
a human. You are created. You're not creator. Therefore, you are religious. You're bound to something. That's what it means to be religious. It means to be bound to something. You have a platform from which you make decisions every day, every moment of your life. You're standing on a platform making decisions. And what platform are you standing on? You are deeply religious. But you have to understand, there's a difference between worldly religion and gospel religion. A profound difference between the two. Worldly religion, whatever it is, humanism, Buddhism, secularism, Islam, Mormonism, all the isms out there, all the man-made religions say that your obedience to the law, whatever the law is that binds you, is what gains your standing. Now, a lot who call themselves Christians do this too. You know, a lot who call themselves Christians say that if you obey the law, then God will fill in the blank. And we think naturally in that way. That's worldly religion. On the other hand, gospel religion says that God's obedience to the law is what gains your standing. And that's grace. That's what Martin Luther discovered, isn't it? That in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. That is by faith. The two, worldly religion and gospel religion, produce very different outcomes in your daily life. Worldly religion leads to a complex of self-righteousness. Whether, whatever your view of yourself might be, whether you have a superiority complex or an inferiority complex, they ultimately lead to the same thing. If you have a superiority complex, it's because you believe that your obedience is better than everyone else's. Therefore, you look down on them in your self-righteousness. If you have an inferiority complex, it means that you believe that your obedience is worse than everyone else's. Therefore, you have to cover yourself. You cover yourself with passivity. I'm just not going to enter into that conversation. Or you cover yourself with self-deprecation to make yourself look better and present something that is not you to others so that they'll think more highly of you. It's self-righteousness too. It's providing for yourself a cover. Superiority or inferiority complex, they're both complexes and they're both self-righteousness. And that's what worldly religion produces. On the other hand, gospel religion produces humility. Why? Because there's no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. The incarnation is God's journey into a humble position. He put Himself under the law in order to gain righteousness for all who believe. If the provision of the gospel is gained by this humble position, then the attraction of the gospel is secured by a humble stature. Imagine that you're setting out on a journey at Christmas time or whenever, and you're traveling from Dallas to Waco or Dallas to Tyler or Dallas to Sherman, somewhere not too far away, about 80 or 90 miles, plus or minus, depending on the route that you take especially given the fact that you have no car to drive and only a sturdy mule to carry some of your things along with your very pregnant wife. You have some well-worn sandals on your feet and you have a long way to walk. It's a journey into exhaustion, isn't it? That's what 
Joseph and Mary undertook to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They were walking this long journey along a rough road. And when they arrived with their feet blistered and their bones aching and with saddle sores on mamas pregnant behind, they were worn out and exhausted, discovering that to find sleeping quarters in this little town was tougher than college station on a home game weekend. You just can't find a hotel room in this place. And so, the time being at hand, she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. These people didn't rate. Mary and Joseph. They had no rank. There were no commoners allowed in the Admiral's Club in Terminal D. There was no place for them to kick up their feet and rest and relax There was no way for them to shield their human frailty from the elements. And into this, the God-child would come. There was no room in the inn. There were no royal robes to wear. There There were no important visitors to be had, only stinky shepherds and strange magi, whatever that is. And it was no mistake. Born into no no acclaim, no worldly significance. There was no mistake in this. Even the prophet Micah, some 700 years earlier, had displayed for us to see, if we would read carefully and recognize it, that, that this was no mistake being born into this humble status. Micah wrote this, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel." whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. I love how the Bible draws this broad picture to show us it's all a narrative story from beginning to end. It's not disjointed at all. Micah, 700 years before this journey by Joseph and Mary, had declared by the Spirit of God in him that Bethlehem, too little to be counted among the tribe of Judah, little and insignificant, little Bethlehem with no status at all, from you will come a ruler whose coming forth is no mistake. Rather, it's from of old. It's from ancient days. From the very beginning, God knew, I will redeem my people out of a humble status in a tiny town that nobody cares about. That's what God would do because from the beginning, the Messiah would have no credentials other than himself. Why did God do this? I mean, if he's all powerful, why didn't he just wave a wand and say, everything's going to be okay now. I've got a magic wand. I'm going to, boom, my creation. Now it's okay. Why didn't he do that? That would have been much simpler, wouldn't it? I can tell you the reason. He didn't wave a wand and work some magic that would be simple and quick and clean because He is the one true God. You know, false gods wave wands. False idols, to which you find yourself clinging at different times, like to conjure up immediate gratification for you. They don't submit to your laws. They don't place themselves below you. Rather, they tempt you and they tease you. They promise you glory with the wave of a magic wand, and then they deliver nothing but ruin. That's what false gods do. The thing about God's humble stature is this. No one can say to him, you don't understand my condition. No one can say that. 
to the true God. You don't understand me, God. You've not been where I am, so don't tell me. No, no one can say that because he has been. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Temptation doesn't cause sin, but rather it gives us opportunity to show what's already there in our hearts, right? Recently, the ice storm, you know, last week at our house, we lost power, as I'm sure many of you did as well. And having a grandmother visiting from out of town, we didn't try to tough it out and candles and blankets in a 40-degree dark house. We abandoned the house and went to La Quinta Inn. And we'd go back to the house now and then to check on things, get a few things, and we were there for three nights away without power over the weekend. And, and one, I guess it was Sunday evening, we came back to the house. Uh, we had just, just left the house with things, and I came back 30 minutes later, very providentially, glad for this, <clears throat> and found that in one of the kids' bedrooms, water was cascading out through the light fixture in the ceiling of the bedroom, soaking the bed and the carpet and all there. It had only been happening for about 30 minutes. We'd just been there shortly before. So I went up in the attic and turned off the water to the hot water tank up above, a tankless box up above. And then I posted it on Facebook. It's always kind of a mistake because it, it, it causes you to be tempted to say, to make more of it than what it really is. And so I posted something about it on Facebook. And then in the following week, a friend said, so how's, how are things at your house? And I said, oh, it's, you know, it's not that bad. It's, we're, we're drying up some carpet and stuff. It's okay. And he said, I, I heard that the, the tank crashed through the ceiling into your room and there was water flooding everywhere. And a fish story started like this and became like this because, you know, in, in my own idolatry of warmth and warm water and so on, you know, I maybe made more of it than what it, what it was. I desire false gods. And I can't say to God, you don't understand what it's like to be forced out of your home. You don't understand what it's like to have to take a cold shower. You don't understand, God, what it's like. And all my petty listing of stuff, of comforts and little idols that I have. God had to come in a humble stature. He had to. In order to sympathize with our weakness, to feel the force of temptation, and yet to do it without sin. Paul said to the Corinthians, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. The attraction of the gospel is secured by this humble stature that He took upon Himself. But then the power of the gospel is displayed by His humble authority. So, young Christians, why Bethlehem? Why Bethlehem? Why did did these people, Joseph and Mary, travel to Bethlehem? Why did God have it such that the God-child, Jesus himself, would be born in Bethlehem? I mean, if God was going to save the world through a human life, why not just birth him into the realms of power in humanity as it already was? I mean, there were higher, stronger places where he could have started, where everybody would have known who he was. They all would have listened to what he had to say. Why not start out in power rather than in a town too little to even be counted as part of the tribe of Judah? Doesn't God, after all, know how we human beings do things here? 
I mean, doesn't he know that for us to get anything done, you need to have credentials. You need to have backing of people who are bigger than you are. You need to have references who can vouch for who you are so that you can then speak and people will hear you and listen and trust what you say is being true. Doesn't God know that that's the way that we work here? Why would he send his God's son to Bethlehem to begin? I think there are two reasons that we can kind of encapsulate to understand why this is. The first one is he did it, Bethlehem that is, to make a genealogical point. The text tells us it is the city of David. It was where King David had been born about a thousand years before. And Joseph's family was from this tribe of Judah, from David's family line. And so the Christ child was born into royalty, into the line of David. Literally, genealogically, that's where he was. And yet it was a royalty that the world had largely discarded. I mean, I would think that probably for Joseph to walk around telling his friends, you know, I'm from the line of David, they probably would have looked at him and said, well, big deal. I mean, it would be kind of like me saying to you, one of my ancestors is Stephen F. Austin. I think that he is. But you don't care. I mean, it doesn't really matter, right? Stephen F. Austin, one of the founders of, you know, forefathers of Texas. It doesn't really matter. And I think that probably for Joseph, it just wouldn't, nobody would care. Nobody in Israel cared where Joseph was from. They wanted a military Messiah. They wanted someone to come and take charge as a real king. The Jews did. Someone who would come and flush out the Roman invaders and get rid of them and bring back Israel as to what it was supposed to be before and what it had been and bring back the old glory. And they wanted a military Messiah. They didn't care where Joseph was from. How could a royal child be born into a world of messianic expectations with no intent to fulfill them? Becoming a small and poor child, giving himself to be judged as a man mocked and nailed to a piece of wood. How could God do this? Because his authority was so great, so great, that he could think of himself not at all. And that leads us to the second reason. Why Bethlehem? The second reason is this. It's to make a theological point. And the theological point is this. You can't card God. You can't card God. You can't request His references or His credentials. You remember one famous story in Scripture where that was sort of attempted. It was Moses, remember, with the burning bush. And Moses was being told, go to Egypt and say to Pharaoh, release my people. And Moses, I mean, he knew how we work. I got to have some credentials. I mean, I got a burning bush in front of me that's talking to me, and I understand you're Yahweh, but who am I going to say to Pharaoh? Because he's going to want to know. What am I going to say to him? Who told me to come to you and say this? Should I say, well... A burning bush spoke to me. It's Yahweh. And, and Yahweh's friends with the king of Syria. And, and he knows the, the king of Asia. And they're friends. And so Pharaoh, will you? No. What did God say to Moses when Moses requested credentials? He said, tell Pharaoh, I am. Tell Pharaoh, I am the one who is. I am the being one. 
There's nothing else that can be said. You can't card God. You see, this humble birth in Bethlehem was not just the birth of a great king. It was the birth of the king of kings. The one who is self-existent need not begin in a place of worldly significance because he needs no credentials. He is his own credential. And that's all. True authority can show deep humility because it doesn't have to depend, it doesn't have to defend itself, it doesn't have to depend on acceptance of others because it exercises its authority through providence. You know, every detail surrounding the coming of the Messiah was perfect in God's providential plan. Micah had declared it 700 years before, O Bethlehem, little tiny town, a ruler from you will come, from ages declared, who will be my king. And all the providential details were perfect. They lived, Joseph and Mary did, in a peaceful empire, as Caesar Augustus had accomplished it to be. They lived in the midst of a power grab through a census by some local rulers and under the authority of Caesar Augustus, a power grab that required them to make a trip to Bethlehem, where David's family was from, a virgin who was betrothed to a man with David's blood coursing through his veins. There was no room in the inn. There was a feed trough for a bed, a perfect setting for a humble coming of a great king of kings, because in the humility of God is the redemption of men. Making its way down through the kind of grapevine of missionary stories uh, in the Christian world is one of a secluded and primitive tribe in a forgotten jungle off in the Netherlands somewhere. And there in that particular tribe, they drew water out of a well, a hand-dug deep well down into the ground that had steps carved out into the sides of it so someone could, could step down into the well, one person, could do that, only room for one, to go down deep to draw water out of the well. And a young child, a toddler, two, three years old, toddling along through the dirt, toddled into the well, dropped down 30 feet into the well. And no one was there to, to save this child strong enough to go down, to squeeze down into the well to retrieve this child and save them, except for the, the tribal king himself who was there. And so he removed his royal headdress and he set it down and then he stepped down carefully into the depth of the well to retrieve this child. And the missionary's concern and thought was, you know, when this king removed his tribal royal headdress, was he suddenly not the king? Well, no, of course not. He descended down, but did he cease to be king? No. In fact, all the more was he king by the humble position he took giving himself to this child. All the more was he king by the humble status of descending down into the dirt itself. And all the more was he king by the humble authority of taking on a burden that no one else but himself could bear. His countenance became all the more royal Because of it, the King of Heaven took on flesh. The God of the universe came down and remaining what He was, He became what He was not. 
remaining a king, he became as a commoner to accomplish for the commoner what only a king could do. You're not humble if you think less of yourself. But in the security of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are free to think of yourself less. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, we pray that you would grant to us faith to believe and eyes to see your good news in this, your word, and to follow after you in faith because of it. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.